Hello and welcome to this special Christian Landmark presentation. Here at Christian Landmark, we're very concerned with the history of the church. And uh, we've decided to have a series of interviews with some of our gospel preachers to talk about things that have happened in church history. And so today we're with evangelist Paul Nichols, who's graciously agreed to sit down with us and talk about his life and work as a gospel preacher. Paul, thank you very much for being here today. You were born September 5th, 1922 in New Mexico, and uh, as a young boy moved to El Paso, Texas with your family, and then to Hollywood, California. You were the age of eight, as I understand it. Uh, tell us a little bit about your early life, about your parents and your siblings, and uh, your time moving around and then ending up in Hollywood. Well, I was born in Alamogordo, New Mexico, September the 5th, 1922. I had an older brother who was uh, three years old when he passed away with diphtheria. And after his death, we moved to El Paso and lived there until I was eight years of age. And then we moved to Hollywood, California. And we arrived at the beginning of the Great Depression. We actually arrived in December of 1930. And uh, we had the opportunity of being registered with Central Casting and worked in the movies then for a period of time. That was not our life's ambition, but it was a means of helping to support the family. And uh, <clears throat> we continued in that for a period of time, but after I decided to preach the gospel, I told my mother that I didn't want to work in the movies anymore, and she agreed. I grew up <clears throat> going to school in uh, Hollywood and graduated from Hollywood High School, and the graduation took place in the Hollywood Bowl. And uh, I obeyed the gospel under the preaching of uh, Home Rail King and uh, was baptized at Montebello, California. I didn't realize that uh, younger men could preach the gospel at that time. I was uh, asked by Brother Otis Osborne if I would uh, lead a song. Well, I wasn't a song leader, but I didn't want to disagree with him. And so I agreed to do that. And he asked me to read a chapter at church, and I agreed to do that. Uh, I don't know to this day what I read, but I started out by uh, accommodating his wish, and from that it led into teaching. And during this period of time, I had the opportunity of getting acquainted with uh, younger preachers, and I then decided when I was about 15 or 16 that I wanted to obey the God, that I wanted to preach the gospel the rest of my life. And so, <clears throat> and when I was 18 years old, one month and 15 days after my 18th birthday, I preached my first sermon at uh, Monrovia, California. And that was. Uh, 
That was October the 20th, 1940. I was not yet out of high school when I preached my first sermon. And then when I was 19, I had the opportunity of preaching night about in a meeting at Montebello, California, where I was baptized. And when I was 20, I had four meetings to hold. I left on Wednesday from Los Angeles by train and was on the road from Wednesday until Saturday night. And I arrived at Brookhaven, Mississippi. I held a meeting at New Salem. I held a meeting then at Hammond, Louisiana. And then by train, I went to Oklahoma City where I held a meeting there. And then from there, I went to Ottomo, Iowa and held my fourth meeting when I was 20 years old. And from that time on, why well, I've been preaching the gospel. And now, uh, you grew up in a Christian home, right? Your parents were both members of the church mm -hmm. and uh, your family, no stranger to uh, gospel preaching. In fact, tell us about your great-grandfather, Brother H.C. Booth. H.C. Booth was my mother's grandfather, and he preached the gospel for 63 years, I'm told. And during that time, he baptized about 3,000 souls. And uh, he is buried at Alamogordo, New Mexico, where I was born. I never had the opportunity of knowing him personally, but I understand that he wrote two books, and I've never seen either one of them. But uh, he uh, was very conservative in his views. He opposed instrumental music and uh, the Sunday school, and uh, I don't know what his stand was on the communion, but I, but I believe that he was for the communion uh, with one cup. However, back in that day and time, the breaking of bread was an issue. And I don't know uh, just when they took their stand for the truth, uh, for the breaking of bread as we understand the Bible to teach it. Well, what was it like growing up in a, in a Christian home during the war era when so many of your peers, young men, were going off to fight and you, I know, were conscience objector. Uh, what, what was that like? Was there, was there a lot of turmoil for your family during that time period? No, there really wasn't a lot of turmoil. My father was a leader in the congregation there at Siskiyou Street. And we grew up uh, with uh, Christian principles, of course, respect for the Bible. And we understood that uh, it was wrong to take human life, and so we took our stand uh, against the war. Uh, there was not a great deal of controversy uh, in our neighborhood or anything like that. However, we had to register according to the law. I registered as a preacher of the gospel, but they didn't recognize my uh, conscientious scruples as a preacher, and they classified me 1AO. Well, I had to get that corrected. I had a brother by the name of Ed who was not granted uh, his legal status 
and uh, was tried in court in Los Angeles and was found not guilty. That is, uh, that he did not have the due process of law, and so they dismissed it. Uh, none of us had to serve in the camps that the boys did who were conscientious objectors. I was classified ultimately as 4D, which was preacher's classification. Uh, I don't know what all difficulty my brothers had with it because I was out preaching and, and busy in the Lord's work. And uh, during the war, <clears throat> uh, there were times when uh, it was difficult for some of our young men to get their proper classifications, and we'd have to uh, maybe go before board members and, and uh, represent uh, our position and so on. And uh, during the war, I made a trip in behalf of Brother Ted Head, who was then living in California, but had been classified as 1A. And so I met with him at uh, Frederick, Oklahoma, with one of the board members who told him that he was going to go into the war. And he said he would not. And uh, that board member told him that uh, the FBI would be after him. He said, I'll go to the FBI. And so I went to Washington, D.C. in his behalf and met with one of the top officials. And uh, he denied reopening his case. So we went to the FBI in uh, Oklahoma City. And they said that uh, they could do nothing until he violated the law. Well, he was sent to prison because of his stand for the truth. And there were other boys that also had to go to prison on account of their faith. In, and uh, others went to the what were called CPS camps and, and uh, some camps that were maintained by the Church of the Brethren and Mennonites and so on. So that's the way it was during the war. Uh, we were on pins and needles. My brother Nelson uh, went to Washington in behalf of the COs. Irvin Waters also did that. And uh, we are registered in Washington as the Peace Church of Christ. We did not choose that name. They dubbed us with the name Peace Church of Christ. In the first Old Paths pulpit, your sermon on carnal warfare is featured. When you first started to preach against Christians being involved in, in carnal warfare as a young man, were you met with opposition amongst church members and church leaders? No, <clears throat> not really. Uh, most of our, bre our brethren had not spent a great deal of time studying the issue, and so there was not uh, much controversy about it. Now, there were certain ones in the Brotherhood who were not uh, conscientiously opposed to going into the service as long as it was non-combatant. But our stand was that they could not be in service and not forsake the assembling of themselves together with other Christians on Lord's Day. They would be denied the privilege of worshiping the Lord in spirit and in truth. 
And so there was a difference uh, in the brotherhood. The other side was not well represented, but they did present a problem for us because uh, we didn't have a completely united front. And that's one reason why Ted Head was denied his uh, legal status. You mentioned the Siskiyou Street congregation. It's a historic congregation in the Los Angeles area. A lot of preachers got their start there or came through there as young preachers. Tell us a little bit about that congregation and what preachers came through there when you were a member there. Well, Siskiyou Street was one of the older congregations in California. In fact, when I was baptized, there were only about uh, no more than six or seven faithful congregations in the state of California, and Siskiyou Street was one of them. The history of that congregation, my grandfather on my father's side, D.F. Nichols, moved from uh, moved to California, and at that time there was no faithful congregation worshiping in Los Angeles. So he and one of the brethren in 1924 uh, was able to secure the Siskiyou Street building and began the worship there. And uh, that's where we grew up in church, worshiping the Lord. That's where uh, my family met regularly, along with my grandfather. My grandmother did not meet with us because she had gone digressive, along with some of the family members on my father's side. And so my grandfather was a leader in the congregation there until he died. My, my family, my father was, became a leader. Uh, we also had uh, an aunt and uncle with four sons, but uh, who went off with the digressives. And so we were not in fellowship any longer. Uh, those four men became doctors. And on our side of the family, we became preachers. And uh, when I decided to preach the gospel, that was a decision for life. It was not until I had traveled a while or got married or anything like that. And so consequently, I've preached the gospel now for 71 years. I had my 71st uh, anniversary, October the 20th of this year, and still preaching. And thankful that the Lord has given me the, the uh, health and the strength to continue to preach. Now, <clears throat> when Wilma, my, my wife, got Parkinson's disease, I told her I was going to cancel all my work. And she told me, you don't have to do that. And I said, yes, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to stay home and take care of you. And then when she had the stroke uh, sometime later, of course, my traveling was uh, greatly curtailed. And so I stayed home with her until she passed away January the 10th in 2010. And since that time, of course, I've been back into the evangelistic field. Now, you had mentioned uh, that you were 20 when you first traveled and started preaching. Mm -hmm. After that first trip, uh, when was it that you 
left Los Angeles and started working with churches full time? <clears throat> when I was 19, I was asked to come and work with a new congregation at Marysville, California, which later became the Yuba City Congregation. At that time, <clears throat> we met at the Women's Club building with a number of uh, brethren and sisters who had been converted from digression by Irvin Waters. And I stayed with that congregation for about three months, during which time I preached and taught uh, singing. And then in uh, the next year, when I was 20, I began traveling and have traveled for years then, uh, not only in the United States, but in other countries as well. Right. Now, <clears throat> there were certain preachers, you ask about the younger preachers who came to Siskiyou Street. Uh, Irvin Waters <clears throat> was a young preacher, 21 years old, when he made a trip with uh, a brother and sister Spites from Littlefield, Texas in 1940, 39 or 40. And uh, I got acquainted with him. Chester King had come from California. Uh, he was the nephew of Homer L. King. And uh, I got acquainted with him and ultimately, he married my sister. Uh, Clovis Cook came to Siskiyou Street, I remember, and he said that he and Irvin Waters had been acquainted for about seven years, and I thought that was wonderful, you know, seven years. Well, I've known people now for 70 years <laughs> more. But there were different ones who came. Now, H.C. Harper, from Sneeds, Florida, made a trip to California. He was an older preacher. I don't uh, remember ever meeting him, but he came to California and then went back to Florida and soon died. Uh, Homer King and uh, Homer Gay, uh, J.D. Phillips, uh, older preachers like they, came to Siskiyou Street. Now. I mentioned that uh, when I obeyed the gospel, there were only about uh, six or seven congregations in the entire state. My father was uh, very concerned with the spread of the gospel. We were not uh, spreading the gospel like he felt that we could and should. And so he encouraged the brethren from the congregation at Montebello, which was only about six miles from Siskiyou Street, and the brethren there at Siskiyou to get together and uh, work out a plan to do evangelistic work. Irvin Waters had come and the brethren had gotten acquainted with him and were impressed with his ability and his conservative views and so on. And so they asked him to come and uh, do mission work. Well, he was 21, as I said, when he came. And during that time, uh, he was supported by the brethren to 
preach the gospel anywhere there was an opportunity to establish a congregation or to convince people of the truth concerning our worship. And uh, during that first year, there were about 150 responses. So it was very successful. Congregations were being established and encouraged to participate in evangelistic work. And during the period, uh, that period that we did that work uh, was about 10 years. And during that time, we grew about 800%. And uh, after a period of time, there were 52 congregations in California. Well, <clears throat> during this period of time, there were other young men who were inspired to preach, including my brothers. And all five of us became preachers. Now, we didn't all stay with uh, full-time preaching. I had one brother who uh, became a government trapper and later was very successful in the real estate business. Uh, Nelson became a teacher. He uh, obtained five degrees and became a principal of two different schools and uh, finally retired as a counselor in his 70s. Uh, my brother Richard uh, lives in Alabama and uh, my brother Ed lives at Oklahoma City. I have a sister who lives at Canyon City, Colorado. And then Nelson lives in Missouri and I live in Kansas. So we have spread out. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, you mentioned a moment ago your wife, Wilma. Uh, how old were you when you met? And tell us about meeting her and what, what it was it that drew you to be interested in her. Well, <clears throat> my ambition was to preach the gospel, not get married. And so I was 27 years old when I met Wilma. And uh, Irvin Waters and I had a meeting at Huntington, West Virginia. And during that meeting in the spring, I had the opportunity to meet Wilma. I had prayed to the Lord to help me find that kind of a wife. And uh, we started dating during that meeting. And within two weeks, we were engaged. We were not married until that fall. Uh, we married on November the 28th in 1949. And uh, soon after <clears throat> we married, there was the appeal that kept coming from Africa that the people over there were interested in the gospel, but they needed help to understand it. And letters came from E.C. Severe to uh, Homer, L., uh, Homer Gay. Uh, an old Paz advocate had found its way into what was then known as Nyasaland, British Central Africa. And E.C. Severe had selected Homer Gay's name as a contact, and so he was appealing for somebody to come 
and to help them to understand the truth. We didn't answer that appeal immediately. And uh, I kept thinking about it and waiting for somebody to answer that appeal. And since nobody else did, I uh, felt the urge to go to Africa and preach the gospel. And during a meeting at Lexington, Oklahoma, Wilma and I were in our little trailer house that we had bought to pull around for our meetings. And she was fixing breakfast. I was sitting there thinking about this need for somebody to go to Africa with the gospel. We had not discussed it that I remember, but that morning I told her that if the brethren would send me, I think I'd go to Africa. And just that quick, she said, and I'd go with you. And how old were you then? I was 27, and she was, uh, she was 19 when we married. So this, that was in 49 when we married, and this was in 50 when this appeal kept coming. And, uh, so you'd been married for less than a year. We had been married a very short time. Mm -hmm. And here she was, a young girl, and had a twin sister, and had uh, three other sisters as siblings, and yet she was willing to travel with me to Africa to preach the gospel. And that was the kind of wife that I had prayed for, one that was dedicated to, the, to doing what uh, uh, work we could for the Lord. And I had that kind of wife for 60 years. Well, tell us about that first trip to Africa. Um, you didn't fly, you didn't take a plane, you took a, a boat, and uh, who went with you and how long did it take to get there? <clears throat> well, first of all, when we made it uh, clear that we were available to, to make that trip, we were at Brother Gilbert Wilson's house, who was then living uh, near Livingston, California. We had not published uh, the notion that we would go. And while we were sitting there at the table after we had eaten a meal, Gilbert and Liz and his uh, several children he looked across the table and said, Paul, would you go to Africa if the brethren would send you? I said, yes, I think I would. He said, I'll donate the first hundred dollars. And that's the way it got started. And when his father found out that he had donated a hundred dollars toward that work or committed that, he also said he would donate a hundred. <clears throat> and then at the Labor Day meeting that uh, Next September, brethren discussed the idea of sending somebody to Africa. And it was decided that Wilma and I would be the ones. At that meeting, there was Homer King, Chester King, Irvin Waters, uh, a number of preachers. At, and it was decided that Wilma and I would be the ones whom the brethren would send. Well, at that time, we knew nothing about Nyasaland. We didn't know anybody who had ever made a trip there that we could consult. 
And so we had, had to start from scratch. At that time, that country was a protectorate of the British government. And so we went to the British consulate and got information. And we began to make preparation after a, a, a appealing for permission to come to the country. We began to buy up supplies that we thought we'd need and uh, had no idea how long it would take before we could get that permit. Well, that was 1951 when we started. And I canceled all of my work and we stayed in West Virginia with Wilma's folks for a period of five months waiting. During that time, <clears throat> having canceled all of my preaching appointments, uh, when we got a job uh, with Sylvania making uh, television tubes. And I uh, painted and, uh, and hung wallpaper and just tried to get by. And seeing that it was taking so long, I decided to go back into preaching uh, full time until we got that permit, and so I began book meetings again. Well, we didn't get the permit until the next year, <clears throat> 1952. And uh, that fall, then we left to go to the mission field in uh, Nyasaland, British Central Africa. Uh, we went to the travel agent and tried to get passage, and it was futile to get uh, uh, a reservation from England on to Africa. But by faith, we sailed from New York to uh, England on the Queen Mary, and fortunately, after we got into uh, London, we were able to secure passage on. So the brethren at that time would not think of flying a preacher anywhere. We were on our own. And uh, we booked that passage on the Kenya Castle. And our trip took us about six or six and a half weeks from New York on. Uh, since the brethren would not furnish money to fly a preacher, we had to go the best way we could, and that was the way we went. Of course, we had worship on the, on the ship every Lord's Day, just like the apostles did as they made their way to mission points and preached the gospel. We arrived <clears throat> at uh, Byra, Portuguese East Africa, took a dilapidated old steam engine pull train, and uh, the next evening after we left Byra, we arrived at Limby, uh, and it was already dark by the time we got there. But we met E.C. Severe, and two or three of the brethren were at the station. So they, got a, they secured a taxi which was a 1941 Chevrolet station wagon with one window out and with uh, a defective radiator. 
And this is the time of the year that uh, we had a chiparoni, which was a, a drizzling type rain. I asked <clears throat> Brother Severe how far it was, and he said it was 24 miles. So we started out, and of course the road was uh, not paved. It was a washboard type road. We had to stop one time to check the radiator. All of our stuff that we'd brought from the States was piled into that station wagon, along with three or four Africans and, and Wilma and me. We rode for a period of time, and <clears throat> we turned off of that good road onto a village road. And I asked Brother Severe at that time, how, how far is it now? I thought we'd travel far enough to get there, and he said, about 10 miles. <laughs> so then we went down through the villages and arrived at uh, the place where we were going to live, a house that was vacated by a native family. It had dirt floors and a grass roof. We slept on army cots. We had uh, a coal oil or kerosene lantern and uh, our lamp and a gasoline lantern. And that was our lights. We had no telephone. We had uh, no running water. Water had to be carried from a well uh, about a, a mile from where we lived. Uh, we got our mail about once a week, and sometimes it would be two weeks. We had no uh, outside prevalent communication until we went into town to buy supplies. And we would go in about once a week or once every two weeks and buy supplies. And then we would buy a, a, an overseas combined newspaper from England with all the stale news and all. And we were <clears throat> the only touch uh, that we had with uh, America was those letters that we received. And uh, I can say that one of the greatest difficulties for overseas mission work, especially when you're isolated like we were living in a native village, is uh, loneliness. Because you don't have any communication with people that you know except a letter that is uh, maybe two weeks old by the time you get it. And uh, we would pour over the mail until we had that all read, and then we were out of communication again, living among the Africans and having no uh, communication outside of those letters with uh, our loved ones back in the States or with any of our brethren. And here my wife was 21 years old. And how long did you stay that first trip? We set up the scriptural worship. We taught them how to worship the Lord scripturally. And we taught them about Christian living. And uh, we were there for about, well, we went in 52 and we came back in 53. But we set it up so that they understood what the Bible taught. And there were a number of baptisms during that period of time. <clears throat> Now that first service that we attended there at Windy Windy, and the building was uh, made of mud and uh, thatched with grass. The seats were hardened mud. 
And uh, that first service, we found that they didn't know anything about scriptural worship. It had, we had to start from scratch. And uh, there was a, a woman that, that got up and, and made a public confession, uh, detailed. We don't know what she was talking about, but she made a confession to the congregation. Well, we had to teach them that women couldn't speak in the church. We had to teach them uh, scriptural baptism and the steps of obedience before that. And all of the, we had to start from scratch to get that work started. Well, by the time we left, they understood then scriptural worship and uh, obedience to the gospel. And uh, at least they had been enlightened about Christian living, which they didn't understand. And then <clears throat> we were in touch with these people by mail and could uh, offer instruction by that means. And then <clears throat> Wilma and I had uh, been sent to Pismo Beach uh, after we uh, came back to America. Uh, after evangelizing and so forth, we went there uh, at the suggestion of the congregation in uh, Bakersfield who was supporting us to work with them. We went there for a period of time with a new congregation and, and uh, helped them. But during that time, we were in constant uh, touch with Nyasaland and their needs. And I decided that somebody needed to go back over there and encourage that work. So I suggested at that time to Galen Osborne, if he would volunteer to go, I'd volunteer. Now the reason I suggested Galen, he and I both were brought up on the same teaching. He was not afraid to work with his hands. He uh, would be available if we had a breakdown, just like I'd be working on the car, he'd be working on it. And he and I <coughs> volunteered to go back over there and the brethren sent us then. We went in 1958 left here in 58 and arrived after the first of the year in 59, not knowing that the country was under civil disorder. And soon after we arrived, uh, there was a plane that flew over that was throwing out notices that, uh, uh, that we were under uh, or what do they call it? Anyway, we were, uh, we were to let other people know that we were uh, under this uh, situation. Uh, and not long after that, warplanes flew over, which was a very rare thing to even see an airplane. But warplanes flew over, and then it wasn't long after that until truckloads of soldiers were brought in uh, from southern Rhodesia because the country was in this civil upheaval. And uh, we went back to live in Wendy Wendy. And at that time, Galen and Rowetta had four children and we had one. 
And so there we were, sitting ducks out there in the village. And uh, during this period of time, the uh, government set up a, a barbed wire entanglement communication center in Blantyre and soldiers walked the streets with guns. And uh, during this period of time, 22 of the Africans were killed at Nkata Bay. Africans were stoning cars and uh, they stoned the Rolls Royce of the uh, prime minister from Southern Rhodesia when he came. And one day when Galen and Rowetta were in town, uh, there were a couple of uh, white officers that were surrounded by the Africans. And later we heard that uh, somebody threw a, a rock or brick or something and knocked one of them's eye out. So this is the tens tension that we were working under and teaching the Africans not get involved in these things, not get involved in these things. Well, the... <clears throat> Security officer at a place called Tuchila sent us a letter by a messenger who brought uh, three lemon trees from the agricultural station where this security officer was uh, stationed. And the reason for the trees was to uh, keep the messenger from knowing the urgency of, the, of his trip with a sealed envelope. And when he came, we dismissed him. And in that letter, it said, show no surprise, two different times. And to consider this a matter of urgency and to come as soon as possible. So Galen and I went over there to Tuchila and our security officer then took us away from the office, far away from all the Africans so that he could tell us that they were expecting a raid that weekend and we were, uh, wards of his. They were responsible for our security and, and uh, we were a detriment and uh, wanted to know if we could leave the village. I told him that we could move into a hotel and he said, you, you leave at the crack of dawn in the morning and don't tell the Africans where you're going. We're expecting a raid this weekend. So we left on Saturday and went into, the, into town. And I contacted the uh, consulate general's office in southern Rhodesia, southern Rhodesia and northern Rhodesia, which is now Zambia and Zimbabwe, uh, were a part of the federation with Nyasaland, which is now Malawi. Well, the Africans resented that in nice land. And that's one reason why there was all of this uh, upheaval and, and uh, de destruction and so on. It was on the news every night. And we were sitting ducks out there in, in the village. And that's the reason the security officer told us to leave. So <clears throat> after I called the consulate general's office in southern Rhodesia and told them what the situation was, the consulate general made a trip over there, came to Nyasaland to check on all of the Americans 
Uh, and I understand there were about 125 Americans in the whole country at that time. He came to see what the situation was, and he couldn't even find us out there in, in the village. But we heard that he was in uh, that location, so we went into town, and that that made it possible for us to to go see him. Well, <clears throat> we were told by the security officer to stay until. Uh, until we got the clearance to come back to the village. And his suggestion was for us to call on Monday and ask how the weather was. So <clears throat> he said, if I say it's clear, then you can go back to the village. If I tell you it's stormy, you stay where you are. So we called and he said it was clear and we went back to Wendy Wendy and that's where we, we stayed until Galen got burned. Now the way that happened, we shared a vehicle that we bought for that work. And sometimes both families would go to these village areas to the outlying congregations. And other times we would go, one family would stay at Wendy Wendy while the other family went to one of the bush congregations. Well, Galen had had two drums of uh, kerosene and gasoline uh, brought out there, and uh, he was filling the vehicle with gas, and it was dark when he did that. So he took a, a lantern out there, and he thought he set it far enough away that it wouldn't catch fire. But the fumes got to it, and while he was filling the gas tank, uh, it burst into flame. Samuel Pindani, one of the Africans, was out there helping him, and I heard Samuel say, come quickly, and I knew that it was uh, in desperation, so I rushed out there and I saw Galen standing engulfed in flame, uh, trying to turn off the spigot of that uh, uh, reservoir of gas. and. Uh, when I got out there, he ran and was hollering, get a blanket, get a blanket. Well, I intercepted him and tried to tear his shirt off, which was a flame, uh, but it was a, a work shirt and I, I just tore it to the seams and I couldn't tear it off of it. His wife came out and I told her to get a blanket. She rushed in and came back out and, with a quilt, threw it on him, and I threw him on the ground and put the flame out. By that time, he was burned severely and spent nine and a half weeks in the hospital. The doctors didn't expect him to live, but he did. And uh, the uh, work went on. But this civil upheaval was a real detriment because E.C. Severe got involved in that behind our backs. And while he was translating for us, when we teach the Africans not get involved in all of this, he was getting involved. And so finally Galen and I <clears throat> decided that uh, our work had come to uh, standstill and we informed the Africans we were coming back to America where people would listen. But that civil upheaval was a real detriment to the cause. And, uh, 
get and told E.C. Severe's brother and maybe two brothers and another fellow there at Wendy Wendy said, we're the best friends you ever had. And they said, we know it. So we returned to the States on account of that emergency situation. Well, later on then, other preachers have gone over there and worked in that country. And at this time now, we have about 4,000 congregations or more from that meager start. Right. The Lord really blessed our efforts. <clears throat> and we have many, many preachers in lots of different villages. And uh, Jim Franklin went over there and spent 14 years at the suggestion of Jerry Cutter. And at that time, the brotherhood had been divided because of uh, actions of some of our people that were not the best. And uh, during that period of 14 years, Jim helped to reunite the brotherhood over there and uh, is invited every year to come back and conduct studies in a lot of different villages. And he goes and stays for, uh, for months at a time, separated from home, separated from his wife, in order to do that work. But he loves that, that work and he loves those people and they love him and that's the reason they invite him to come in and study with them. And they set up these studies in these various villages where he can go and study with them. <clears throat> but uh, my work, we lived in Bakersfield, California for about six or six and a half years. And at that time I worked with the what they call the Weed Patch Highway Congregation, which Weed Patch and Brundage Lane. This was after returning from that second trip from Africa, right? Yeah, what, what happened, we came back and I, I worked with the congregation at Compton, you know, at, uh, one of the congregations in the Los Angeles area for about three months. And then Wilma and I decided on our own to move to Bakersfield after that trip. And uh, during that time, I did some personal work with that Weed Patch congregation and held a meeting during which time we gained seven digressives and baptized several. And then that next school year, I worked with the congregation at Arvin. And uh, we initiated a radio program during that time that lasted for about 10 years. And then <clears throat> after that school year, we began that work in, uh, that, that resulted in the congregation on Plans Road. I was asked by Verlin Elliott if I'd be interested in helping establish another congregation in Bakersfield. Well, of course, I was interested. And so <clears throat> we began that work on South H in the Grange Hall. And the congregation at uh, Weedpatch and Brundage at that time then had grown to over 100 in attendance. And so it was almost half and half, uh, half of the congregation uh, came down with us at uh, the Grange Hall and the other half stayed there with the old congregation. And uh, 
The work at the Grange Hall continued for about, uh, about two years. Well, every year I booked summer meetings and I'd be gone for about three months. Well, during one of those periods, the congregation secured the property on Plans Road. And uh, when I came back, then uh, I was working with the congregation and we gained the building that we now have there on Plans Road. It was a, a building owned by the Baptist, but Highway 58 was going to take that property. And so they were selling the building. The building was uh, was an auditorium with the classrooms connected. In other words, it was just one long building and the building was uh, cut in two and we then moved that over on Plans Road and that's the building that we meet in there now. And uh, <clears throat> after we were there for about six and a half years and the Lord really blessed our efforts and we grew and, and uh, then I moved to Modesto by request and lived there then for nine and a half years. Now you talked about your work in Africa, but that's not the only foreign work you've been involved with, right? No. Uh, <clears throat> in 1981, Jim Franklin and I had the invitation to come to India. And uh, the Opaz advocate apparently had gone into the Philippines. And uh, there was some contact between uh, Brother uh, Danao and the Opaz advocate. And I suggested, well, <clears throat> James Orton had uh, gone to Malaysia and held a meeting and came back to the Philippines hoping to meet with Brother Dinao. Well, there are two places that are called Rojas and he went to the wrong one and never met Brother Dinao. So I suggested to Jim that we contact Don King and get Brother Dinao's address and let him know that we were coming to, through the Philippines. So we booked our trip to the Philippines, and then we had a meeting in Malaysia, and then we went on to India. Well, <clears throat> we uh, sent a cablegram to Brother Danao, and when we arrived at Manila, he was at the airport with a sign with his name on it. And uh, we got acquainted with him that day, and uh, after his showing us around and so on, we had a a room that would accommodate the three of us at the hotel. And uh, he and I sat up until way late that night discussing the differences between them and us. They, Brother Denar called them the issues. So we discussed the issues. Jim had fallen asleep because he couldn't sleep on the plane and and uh, so he fell asleep while we were talking. But Brother Denal and I continued to talk way up into the night. 
He said at Manteca, we talked all night, but it, it just seemed like that to him. <laughs> but anyway, the questions would come up. He would ask about instrumental music. He asked about our stand concerning war. Uh, he, he wanted to know our position on the communion, all of these different things. And so we talked about all that. Well, during the daytime, <clears throat> before that, we were talking and we could detect that Brother Deneau expected us to go and study with the other preachers. That's what he wanted. Well, this is on Thursday and we were supposed to leave for, uh, for uh, a meeting on Saturday in Malaysia. And so we had just a very short time. I said, Brother Dano, we won't have time to go up there to, to Rojas. Uh, and we could see that he was just crestfallen because with disappointment. And I said, is there a flight up there? He said, domestic airlines goes to Kauaian. And uh, it leaves at 10 o'clock. I said, Jim, do you think we'll have time to go up there? He said, I don't see why not. So we bought Brother Dunal's ticket and we flew up to Kauaian and then we went by what they call a jeepney, which is a, a jeep that was remodeled to have seats on both sides and a place for the conductor to sit on the back. And we took uh, the only uh, public conveyance that was available there at Kauaian was a, a motorcycle and a sidecar. And so we loaded all of our stuff on that and four of us rode that little motorcycle for three or four miles to catch that jeepney. And uh, it was about 35 or 40 miles then on to Isabella, uh, Rojas, Isabella. And uh, during that trip, they kept taking on passengers until there were 23 of us on that Jeep. <laughs> well, when we got to Brother Dano's house, he was living in a house that had stilts. It was built on poles. We walked up the stairs and, and uh, got comfortable and uh, began to talk about the Bible and the issues. And while we were talking, other preachers would come in. And they join in the, the conversation, and we would answer the question for the Bible. And little by little, they began to argue against their own practice. And uh, since there was no commitment, and during this time, the women were fixing a meal for us. But since there wasn't any commitment, before we left, I said, well, "What are you brethren going to do?" They said, we're going to stop these practices and we're going to teach our people. Now that's how honest they were. So we ate our, we, and they requested prayer. And we ate our meal and caught the last bus back to Manila. During this period of time, the rebels would come out at night and they'd, they'd kill people. We had to go through the mountains where the rebels oftentimes preyed on travelers. But we made it back to Manila. And when we got back to Manila, there was a, 
a large lighted area, which was a bus stop. Brother, Brother Denal said, we'll get out here. It was about 2.30 in the morning at that time. He said, we'll be safe here. So we got out and sat with other people who were there for safety reason. And about 5.30 then, Brother Denal said, we can go now. So we caught a taxi and went to the airport. Well, on the way down from Rojas, Brother Denal was sitting by me. And out of the blue, he said, I'm going to resign. He had children in school. He had one in college. But he was honest enough he's going to give up all of his support for the truth. Now that's his it. support is a digressive preacher, yes, right? Yes, mm -hmm. right. Even had a radio program. Right. He said, I'm going to resign. And then while we were waiting to board the plane for Malaysia, out of the blue, he said, do you think I need to be rebaptized?" We said, well, brother, no, it depends on what you did. What did you do? He said, I heard the gospel. I believed the, the gospel. I repented of my sins. I confessed that I believed that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and I was baptized for the remission of sins. We said, you can't improve on that, brother, no. So that proved how sincere and honest he was. And those other preachers who committed themselves to the truth followed through with it. And by the, this was in January of 1981. And Don King had a trip planned for March 1981. And when he got there, they had already quit practicing some of these uh, unscriptural uh, things that they said they were going to stop, and he found that they were worshiping scripturally. We went on to Malaysia. In Malaysia, you could not advertise the meeting uh, in any big way. They had a little ad about that big in the newspaper. But we had, in attendance, we had Indian, Chinese, and American. Because that's a Muslim country, they, they don't uh, want you to, to convert their people. And you could be imprisoned if you did try to convert them. So that's the reason you couldn't put a big ad in the paper. But anyway, we had attendance of different nationalities. And we held that meeting. And, then when, and at that time, we stayed with Brother Bill Page and his family. He was there. <clears throat> and was the one who helped establish that congregation, though he was not a preacher, and uh, was working with an oil company. And so uh, he gets credit for getting that work started. And then from there, Jim and I went into India, and uh, <clears throat> we had quarters in the railway officers guest house and the only reason that we were allowed to stay there was because brother paul had been an official on the railroad and so by their request we got to stay in that well it was like a prison it had bars on the windows it had shutters that we shut at night 
It had a door with about four different kinds of locks on it. And we were told not speak where it could be heard. And so we had to talk in very hushed tones to each other. And it was like being in prison. And we we're not allowed to come out. We were told don't come out unless, uh, uh, unless Brother Paul comes and gets you. So at night we would write and we would talk in hushed tones. And the only company we had was a little lizard that stuck his head out of a <laughs> hole up in the wall and watched us. And in the morning he'd be gone. The next evening he'd be out watching us. And uh, sort of like a spy. <laughs> <laughs> but <clears throat> we held our services there uh, in Brother Paul's yard. At first we held it on, uh, on the veranda. Uh, <clears throat> you couldn't, uh, you couldn't uh, preach the gospel openly for very long without government supervision because they don't allow resident uh, uh, missionaries. You can't stay there and preach the gospel to them. And uh, so we had to preach on the sly. We were tourists there, but we took advantage of the opportunity to preach the gospel to the people. And so <clears throat> we had in attendance even uh, two Hindus who attended uh, the first uh, services that we held. And then we had to vacate that place because the railway officers were coming. And so we went on into Hyderabad and Sakrunderbad. And in Sakrunderbad, they set up uh, out in the street and just cut off the traffic except for two-wheeled vehicles and, and animals and pedestrians with a Shamiana tent. Uh, it, it, it's uh, an Indian type tent with fringe around it. And they just set it up, had it set up right there and cut off all the traffic and that's where we held our services. And while I was preaching one Lord's Day, a goat walked through. Well, <clears throat> the, the people showed no respect for us and they were loud and and continued with all of their activities and so on in spite of our services going on. Well, <clears throat> we uh, had, uh, we went back to Bitragunta after that. We had 15 baptisms on that first trip. No, the first baptism was up at Kakanada, a Hindu woman with that red spot on her forehead wanted to be baptized. So we baptized her within view of the Bay of Bengal and uh, in a canal. And we baptized 14 others then down at uh, Bintraguta. Jim made another trip over there without me and baptized 45. Well, <clears throat> we found that the Indians are not as uh, committed as they ought to be, and not as reliable. Uh, they've, they've got lots of persecution over there right now, and uh, 
the Hindus and the Muslims are at odds with each other, and the Hindus are against anybody who claims to be a Christian, and the government will not license any uh, located preacher over there. But people have taken advantage of the ignorance of those people. And they've even offered them money to be baptized. I mean, the Church of Christ has done that, the digressives. Uh, to Kakanada, we were told that they saw the digressives offer four rupees apiece for baptisms. And then they could come back and, and report all of the good that they had accomplished, you know. Well, consequently, the government has set up at train stations the warning against baptizing their people. And uh, that's because of the abuse that Americans have made of the privilege of coming over there. But <clears throat> after the, we finished that work in India on that trip, we, we came back through Africa and uh, Jolie Norton and Joanne were at that time in Zambia at Lusaka and so we came back through there and visited with them. I spent one night and then I flew back home to America. Jim stayed longer but uh, we uh, of course had no beef to eat in India because <laughs> Cows are sacred. And at one time, I understand that if you happen to hit a pedestrian and kill him, it, it, you were fined three, three rupees. And if, uh, what, uh, no, amounted to about three dollars. But if you hit a cow and killed it, it was 90 some dollars. Well, that's how they valued their animals. And the animals, the, the cattle just roam the streets. And traffic just has to dodge them or let them pass. And uh, lepers are to be seen in various parts of the town. They're not isolated. Uh, they're beggars and pitiful to, to see. Lots of beggars in India, even little children are maimed to make them professional beggars. And at the cable office, Jim was getting ready to send a cable and I was sitting there waiting. And a teenager walked up with a sheet of paper, handed it to me and it says, I have no tongue, could you help? He said, my brother is deaf. They had maimed both of them. Well, I didn't know, I'd never thought about their being maimed, and I just thought, you know, he needed some money, so I pulled out some money, and I gave, it, I gave him back the sheet, and then I gave him the money, and he handed me the sheet back. He wanted me to sign how much he, he had received from me, so he could turn it over to, his, to the man who maimed him. I became so irate, thinking that I had contributed to that man that had abused those boys. But you see, all kinds of beggars uh, 
and lepers are, are prevalent where the, the fingers are ruined and their features are distorted and all. And they're not isolated, so leprosy spreads. Diseases everywhere, all kinds of diseases. But in Africa, uh, we got to visit and then I flew home. It took me 32 hours to fly home. When we were in India, I called Wilma and hollered for a few minutes. It cost me $30 just because the, the communication was pitiful. I had uh, hoped that Wilma would fly to Africa and meet me there and uh, she was supposed to fly with another woman, but the other woman uh, decided not to go and so Wilma and I didn't get to, to be together there in Africa. So when I got back to Jackson, where we were living at the time, Jackson, Mississippi, I called her from the airport and I said, can you hear me? She said, yes, where are you? I said, I'm at the airport, can you come and get me? Wilma was one of a kind. She made every sacrifice necessary to see that I could preach. We moved time and time again for the work. And two stints in Africa, living in a village, and she knew uh, that village from the first trip, but she agreed to go back to that same place. And lots of the time she was by herself on that first trip. Uh, I'd be out working with the Africans, uh, doing different things, trying to teach them music and trying to teach them the Bible and, and uh, teach them some American games and different things like that. And she would be by herself and uh, she'd be crocheting or she'd be sewing or something like that. But she did try to teach the African ladies how to embroider and uh, help that way. And she would cook some food and we'd let them try that, see what they thought about it. Like the way we cook corn. Well, Brother Severe's wife's mother said, I don't like that American corn. It, <laughs> she liked it like they had it, <laughs> which was just roasted in the fire, you know, and not salted or anything. But anyway, Wilma was, was uh, she was a great, great help to me, and I could never have done the work and traveled like uh, I did and have done through the years if it were not for her cooperation. Getting our children ready in filling station for service, you know, when we come into town. and, and uh, moving into a place that the brethren had supplied and they didn't supply nice places always either that had to be uh, cleaned up and, and all of that or move it, come into town and, and tell us that, uh, well, we thought maybe you'd like to find your own place. And, well, we had a place at home, you know, but we'd come to work with them and, and they'd expect us to find us a place. And uh, at one place, in Oklahoma, they showed us the rooming house where we were supposed to stay. 
didn't even have a bathroom, private bath. We had two little girls. And I said, would it be all right if we uh, rent a, a, a better place that, you know, on account of that bathroom, had to share it with everybody else, you know, with two little girls. I said, would it be all right for us to get us a place and we'll play the, pay the difference? Oh, that man said well, he didn't even notice that. And so in another place up at Grand Rapids, Michigan, they started to get us a place, took us in there to look at it, and across the hall from the room that we were supposed to stay in, the door was open and the men were gambling in there and drinking beer and uh, couldn't even find a key to our door and had a common bathroom for the people. And I asked if I could, if we could get a, a better place and we'd pay the difference. Oh, I guess so. Well, we did stay at a, a place with a private bath. Well, these were the way it used to be when we preached the gospel. Now. A lot of the preachers today don't know anything about the sacrifices we made in order to be where we are. They're eating of vineyards they didn't plant and drinking of wells they didn't dig. And there was a lot of controversy back in those days when, we, when I started out preaching over the cups, the Sunday school, and uh, the support was so meager that you would hardly believe that we were able to keep going. Buying our own cars, which were used vehicles, usually, and working on our own vehicles in order to keep preaching. And uh, I ran across a record that I had kept that I'd forgotten all about and I had listed the sermons that I'd preached during a two-week meeting, support $75. Another meeting, $80. Another meeting, $100. Buying our own cars, buying our own tires, buying our own gas, and lots of times staying in a place where we had to rent the place to stay. But that's the way it used to be when brethren who were not acquainted with the difficulties and expenses of travel were leaders in the congregations. Maybe they used to ride horseback and all they'd have to do is turn a horse out to eat some grass, you know, and they didn't know the expenses and sacrifices we had to make in order to keep preaching. And if I hadn't had a wife like that, I'd been out of the field a long time ago. Because at the end of a school semester, when we lived at Bakersfield, we'd take our children and head out for three months. They'd never see home for three months. And I would hold as many as eight meetings during the summer. And one summer, the last meeting I had was at Huntington, West Virginia. And this was after we moved to Modesto. And I'd be gone for two and a half months. I cut it down to two and a half months being gone. And that last meeting was in Huntington, West Virginia, and we had to drive all the way across the states to get back to California. And after eight meetings, 
we didn't have enough money to buy a good bill of groceries. Now that's the way it used to be. And if we had not been dedicated, we'd have been out of the field a long time ago. So but, you've, you've talked about, you know, these hardships, the financial hardships, the hardships within the church itself, controversies that were dividing the church. But even in spite of all these things, uh, you know, you were able to hold meetings and baptize dozens of people and you were talking about establishing scores of congregations within a few years in, in California as a young man. Well, Why do you I, think... That, no, I was not the one who established but, all but of it. But a being part a part of, of that work. Yeah. Why, you know, wh why is it that the church was, and the gospel was flourishing so well then, and now when the church, our brotherhood is at relative peace, compared, certainly compared to them, the, we certainly don't have the financial burdens that you had. Why is it that we struggle so much now to evangelize? And what advice do you have for congregations who want to evangelize more to, to do more? Well, you know, when people are in desperate circumstances, they're more reliant on the Lord. Now then, money is easily available, and people have good automobiles, they have money to travel, they have uh, all of the distractions of modern life that we didn't have back in that day. For instance, during World War II, the speed limit was 35 miles an hour on the highway. And at night in California, we drove by blackout lights or parking lights on the coast. And brethren were poor. And uh, they were more reliant on the Lord than people are today. And they would travel distances, even though money was not plentiful. They'd drive distances to encourage the preaching of the gospel and to learn. I held four meetings in Central California, the valley, back to back, and we had people who attended every one of these meetings. Not every night, but they would show up and encourage the preaching of the gospel. That's the way it used to be. We have reached a point where entertainment, fun and games, and all of those things are part of gospel meetings that didn't used to be. When we'd hold a meeting, we were there to preach the gospel, and people understood that that's what we were there for. And uh, the only social uh, gathering would be uh, dinner on the ground, the last meeting, or the last services. Uh, the last Lord's Day. And the meetings would last from two weeks on. As long as the interest prevailed, preach the gospel. As long as people were interested in hearing it, preach the gospel. And the average meeting at that time was two weeks. People never thought about a weekend meeting. We, we, we didn't even consider that a meeting at all. That was just preaching. And then, and I can tell you by experience, Irvin Waters and I held a meeting at an abandoned school building south of Livingston, California, about four miles. We went in there and preached the gospel. And interest 
was such that we preached for three weeks. We baptized several and left a congregation there of about 20. And out of that work, the congregation was established in, in Merced, which later moved north and ended up in Atwater. Uh, and there were two congregations that were established just back to back. But brethren would drive dozens of miles in order to attend the services. And now then, it's hard to get members to drive across town to attend a gospel meeting every night. And uh, if you don't have uh, food and games, a lot of the young people are not interested. It's become more social gatherings than it is preaching the gospel of Christ. The gospel seems to be now <clears throat> sort of a go along with the rest of it, you know. And people do not have the hunger and thirst after the knowledge that they one time did when we started preaching. And by their uh, interest and their encouragement, we were encouraged to preach the gospel even under difficult circumstances and hardships and all of that. <coughs> and uh, the interest has swung from concentration on disseminating the truth and reaching people who are lost in sin and those who don't understand their indigression to fun and games. And consequently, we're not baptizing very many people because we don't hold those meetings like we used to. Why, people won't drive to a gospel meeting uh, two weeks in a row, three weeks in a row, whatever length of time we were busy. And preachers don't want to uh, make the sacrifice to, to stay at a place like that. Well, no wonder we're not growing. No wonder we're losing ground. And we will continue. It has been predicted, and I don't know who made the prediction, but at the rate that the Church of Christ has diminished in the past, if it continues like that, within uh, a few years, we won't even have Church of Christ because we're losing ground. We're losing members faster than we're gaining them by death and by digression and by uh, discouragement. Now you've worked with a lot of young preachers uh, during your preaching career. You've trained a lot of young preachers. What advice would you give to a young preacher now who's looking at what you've just described, the the cultural norm of, of the church in America today, and uh, what, what, what advice would you give to a young preacher who's just starting out? <clears throat> well, first of all, they have to have a real desire to save people, to save souls, to teach people the truth, and are willing to make whatever sacrifices necessary in order to reach people with the gospel. And that dedication is for the rest of their life. It's not a matter of traveling because they like to travel or until they meet a wife, like some have done. And uh, recognize 
that money is not the goal of preaching the gospel. Souls are the, the, the aim. And, and if they want to really dedicate their lives to the preaching of the gospel, make up their minds, they'll make any sacrifice necessary to do that. Now, in this day and time, most of us can't work on our cars anymore. And they're so complicated now that we have to have professionals. But we used to have to work on our own cars lots of times. We uh, rebuild the motor, uh, reline the brakes. Uh, and, and when I started out, cars didn't have heaters in them. And they didn't have cruise control. And they didn't have uh, CDs and uh, all of these amenities that we now have in modern cars. My first car I bought when I was 19 years old. I was a young preacher at the time, very little support, and my father and Urban Waters said, you can't afford a car. I said, now you all might as well hush because I'm gonna buy a car. So Barney Welch, who baptized my wife in West Virginia, he was in California uh, and doing some of that work that I was talking about. He and I were at Watsonville, California, and ran across this 1935 Ford, $190. So we stopped and looked at it. And uh, I didn't have the money to buy it. I had, uh, I could rake up the $90. Barney suggested, why don't you borrow the money from your daddy, which is a bad suggestion. But I bought it. <laughs> and I went home with it. And I broke the news to daddy. Well, my dad, uh, he didn't say much. I told him that, uh, I need to borrow a hundred dollars on it. He said, well, I happen to have the hundred dollars, but don't go out and make debts for me to pay. I never borrowed another dime from him. He borrowed some from me one time, <laughs> or owed me, but I didn't borrow any more like that. That was bad advice given to me, but I bought the car. And uh, the next morning, Daddy wanted me to start it up so he could listen to the engine. Of course, I could hear all kinds of noises then. He said, not bad, and he got in his car and left. So that was my first automobile. Had no heater. It was a stick shift. It was several years old. It was a two-door. <clears throat> and uh, I bought it during the war. Well, we had difficulty getting gas for it, and so I put a pro propane tank in it. Uh, it, was, it wasn't called propane, but anyways, that kind of fuel. And that's the way I, I went preaching with that. And then I needed tires, and you had to apply for that, and so I had difficulty getting tires. I had, by the ration board, I got one reclaimed rubber tire. 
And I finally decided I'd just sell the car and ride the bus, ride the train, and that's what I did then from, until I was able to do better. So that's the way it was, and what I suggest to young preachers, forget about the financial side of it and commit yourself to the saving of souls if you want to preach. And if you don't want to do all that and make the sacrifice, stay out of it because it's the wrong field for you. At Sulphur, a young fellow who had been traveling with one of the other preachers, he said, uh, walked up to me and he said, Paul, can I ask you a question? I said, sure, what is it? Do you make a lot of people mad? I said, well, I don't know about that, but I said, I'm not, I'm not trying to win a popularity contest anyway. I said, I preach the gospel because I love the souls of men and I love the Lord. He said, I'd like to preach like that. Well, some young fellows haven't learned that yet, evidently. And he had heard somebody make the remark that I made people mad when I preached. Well, my attitude is tell people what the Bible says, whether they like it or don't like it, because God wants them to know that. And if they get mad at me, they're getting mad at the messenger rather than the message. They're mad because of what they heard, but it was for their good. And I don't know how many people have, have uh, told me how much they appreciated that. Fred Kerbo made the statement one time, said, Paul Nichols preaches them into hell and then laughs at them after he gets them there. Well, I don't appreciate that because that was not so. I preach the truth. I'm not a politician. I don't pre I preach to please men. If I yet please men, then am I not the servant of Christ, said Paul. And being put in trust with the gospel, so we speak. God is pleasing men, but God withdraws our heart. And that's my my attitude toward preaching, and that's what I encourage other preachers to have. Politics have no place in the church, and when people start playing politics, they're out of, out of order. Now, we don't preach a social gospel. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And if we have the opportunity to present the truth, we need to do it, because that may be the last opportunity we ever have to talk to these people and give them the truth. I want to ask you about one more thing. Mm -hmm. Just uh, two months ago, you celebrated your 89th birthday, and you did so while you were holding the California Labor Day meeting, which is hosted by the Plans Road Church of Christ in Bakersfield, which you've talked about a little bit in this interview. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was there, they had a big birthday celebration for you. What was that like to be able to celebrate your birthday with people it you've known for so long? It was a real thrill just to be asked to hold a meeting. I was humbled by that and uh, had no idea that they were going to say happy birthday or have those birthday cakes and all. I was 15 years old before I ever had a birthday cake. Being brought up during the Depression, that was a luxury. And Daddy had, had seven children. So we didn't celebrate birthdays like that. And so <clears throat> on my 15th birthday, I believe it was the 15th, either 15th or 16th, there was a woman who, whom we visited had a birthday cake for me. And then at Bakersfield, when they sang that happy birthday 
with a crowd that was estimated between three and 400 people. It was very humbling, a, a, a real thrill to my soul. And then to see those birthday cakes, three of them, with my name on them and happy birthday. It was, uh, it was really appreciated. It was an honor. <clears throat> well, thank you so much, brother, for sitting down with us and uh, sharing a little about your life and your work. And thank you again for uh, tuning in, and we hope to have more of these interviews in the future. But we're especially thankful for evangelist Paul Nichols, who has joined us today for uh, this time to talk about his life and his work as a gospel preacher. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Enjoyed it very much. Thank, thank you. Thank you.